Hi, and welcome to Listen Up A-Holes, the only Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast that ponders a woman. I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. Together, we are working our way through the good, the bad, and the bulletproof of the MCU. So listen up, A-Holes. We're going to talk about Luke Cage Season 1, Episodes 1 and 2. Well, obviously, I have to start with four color facts about Luke Cage himself, right? Yeah, oh, absolutely. First couple episodes, I deferred from talking about him too much when, even though he was all over Jessica Jones, because I was like, he's got his own show, he's got his own show, and here we are. (laughs) So let's talk about Luke Cage, who is more properly known as Power Man, and don't let Brian Michael Bendis or the entire publishing empire that is Marvel Comics or the media juggernaut known as Netflix convince you otherwise he's Power Man, (laughs) that's what's up. But (laughs) he actually first appeared in Luke Cage Hero for Hire number one, cover dated June 1972. Wow. Now, that year may surprise you. I mean, he's a very, like, hip, modern, urban, Mm -hmm. as the marketing professionals like to say, kind of fellow. And he (laughs) always has been, including when he was created in 1972. Wow. For certain metrics of, like, hip and urban. Because, Mm -hmm. let me tell you, he was created by Archie Goodwin, George Tusca, Mm -hmm. Roy Thomas, and John Romita Sr. And you might take note. Those are all white dudes. Oh, God. Now, Luke was originally created to capitalize on the black exploitation film genre. Lonnie, mm-hmm. are you familiar with black exploitation? Uh, so vaguely. Like, I'm, <laughs> I'm aware of it, but I haven't really studied it deeply. Absolutely. I, I This is more or less the answer that I expected. No shade <laughs> intended. It's mm-hmm. just... I'm really into hard-boiled detectives. Several black exploitation right. films are hard-boiled detectives, and that's how they hooked me, you know. Yeah, that's how they got you. So for those who may not know, or for those who need a little deeper look, black exploitation is like a portmanteau on the idea of the exploitation film. Exploitation films themselves are typically pretty B-movie offerings that mm-hmm. capitalize on very current or niche trends, or they go for particularly lurid or shocking details and visuals. Mm-hmm. Now, as you can probably tell from the name, black exploitation films were aimed squarely at a predominantly African American and urban audience, but the popularity came to cross racial lines, and so of course Hollywood proper got in the act with 1971's Shaft. <laughs> This is particularly of note because, honestly, Luke Cage is basically Shaft with superpowers. Yeah. And the most impressive thing about his debut is that it was only a year after Shaft arrived in theaters. Marvel mm-hmm. is not usually so quick on the pop cultural uptake. Ask me about the Disco Dazzler sometime. <laughs> oh, I will. <laughs> uh, short version, Disco was deader than Disco by the time they introduced the Dazzler. So that's the short version, but oh, there's so much more. Now, because this is a Netflix show, you can rest assured that there's an interminable flashback origin episode later in the season. So I am going to take that opportunity to talk about Luke's in-comic book origin. Because Mm -hmm. parts of the show diverge pretty sharply from the comics canon. So it just, you know, we'll talk about it when it's important. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. Instead, for this first episode, I want to talk about some of the things that made Luke new and unique, sometimes for better, but often for worse. (laughs) For one thing, Luke Cage is the first black American character to headline his own book. Wow. Yeah, it's a really big deal, actually. I mean, the Mm -hmm. Black Panther had been around for some time, uh, but we wouldn't have Rhodey as Iron Man for close to a decade. Wow. And the Falcon was still, you know, hanging out with Captain America, but we wouldn't have Falcon as Captain America for several decades. That was fairly Mm -hmm. recent. So the fact that out of nowhere, Luke Cage, hero for hire, headlining his own book, it it Mm -hmm. broke a color barrier of sorts. For superhero comics. Yeah, it's very cool. However, as I mentioned, he was written by all white men who apparently only knew how African-American people spoke via the absolute campiest of blaxploitation film dialogues. Jesus. (laughs) Because Cage mostly spoke in super jive? Like, it's the jiviest jive that ever jived? Oh, God. It's probably what a bunch of white comic book writers thought Jive sounded like. It's not great. Oh, no. It's oh, not great. Oh, no. There's a lot of, hey, turkeys, <laughs> and what's up, cats, you know. And of course, of course, sweet Christmas. Oh, my God. Now, this is also an interesting thing about Luke. As you can tell by the title of his book, he's not entirely an altruistic hero, at least not in mm-hmm. theory. He is, as it says on the cover, a hero for hire. Mm-hmm. After all, the Avengers don't come to the ghetto, and Luke has oh, bills God. to pay. <laughs> so it's a win-win for Harlem, right? Mm-hmm. In practice, though, Luke turned out to be kind of a soft touch who rarely collected much of a fee if the person honestly <laughs> couldn't pay. Aww. And it's Harlem, so a lot of times they honestly couldn't pay, and he wound up you know, working for free. Mm-hmm. But what if they could pay and just didn't? Mm-hmm. Well, then Luke would follow them to the ends of the earth. <laughs> or maybe just Latveria. <laughs> and if that name is familiar to you, mm-hmm. <laughs> let me tell you about the time that Dr. Doom, via a low-level goon, hired Luke to mm-hmm. find some missing people. Those missing people turned out to be robots? Okay. Yeah. Like it's... LMD robots or like robot robots? Doombots pretending Doom to be bots. other humans mm-hmm. and having their own okay. lives. It's <laughs> it's supposed to be some kind of commentary on slavery, I guess. Mm. It's it is what it is, right? So let me tell you about the good part. <laughs> Luke does the job. Doom skips out on the bill. Luke borrows oh. a fantastic car from the Fantastic Four. Flies to Latveria, busts into Doom's castle, takes a punch from Doom, then throws the Latverian monarch all over his own throne room. (laughs) And all of that comes after Luke demanded his money in his own unique fashion. And I quote, give me my money, honey. Uh. (laughs) To Dr. Doom. Oh, my God. Now, therein, that story, you kind of have a microcosm of what's best and worst about Luke Cage. Right. Mm -hmm. He's an African-American man straight out of Harlem who uses his powers for good while still trying to pay the bills. He accepts people at their word and expects the same treatment. And he Mm -hmm. isn't afraid of anyone, even Dr. Doom. (laughs) He's a character with a lot of personality and a lot of great moments. But some of those moments are when he's a jive-talking stereotype written to capitalize on black pop culture written by a team of white men. 
It's a mixed oh, bag. Man. It's a mixed yeah, bag. It sounds like it. So everything else about Luke, and there is more for me to talk about, but we will spin it out over the next few episodes. Mm-hmm. I needed time to talk about Misty Knight. Oh, my God. I love her. You should. She's great. <laughs> she is just fantastic. She first appeared in Marvel premiere number 21, cover dated March 1975. Mm-hmm. She was created by Tony Isabella and Arvel Jones. So at least one African-American was involved in the creation of this African-American superhero character. Well, hello for progress. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and it might be the reason she doesn't say shit like sweet Christmas and you jive talking turkeys. <laughs> Thank God. Thank God. <laughs> so in the comics, Misty is an ex-cop who lost her arm preventing a bomb attack. Ooh. And rather than take a desk job, she just resigned. Okay. Tony Stark supplies her with a cybernetic arm that gave her enhanced strength. And now that you know that, you are going to spend this entire series waiting for her to lose her arm, and the creators know that and are using oh, it against you. Oh, man. <laughs> it was a tense several episodes here in this season when I was like, oh, is yeah. this when they're going to do it? Will she have a robot arm when Defenders? I can't uh, wait to find out. Uh, so stay tuned, friends. Mm-hmm. So Misty became a very present guest star or secondary character in the street level end of the Marvel Universe. She teamed up Mm -hmm. with Spider-Man and Iron Fist to fight crime, but she also appeared in the X-Men books of the late 70s and early 80s as Jean Grey's roommate. Okay, do you have to be a mutant to be, or just, they weren't roommates at like the school or something, they were roommates just out in the world? Ah, I see. Yes. This is yeah. after okay. the original batch of X-Men had grown to adulthood and Jean was oh, no longer okay. living at the mansion. So, Okay. All right. Good to know. So, yes, they were roommates. They had a flat or something somewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't. Actually, the details are all right there in the X-Men comics that I'm currently rereading, but I have mm-hmm. forgotten them. Uh, but nevertheless, they're roomies. Mm-hmm. And yes, we're talking about that Jean Grey, the one that died and came back as a cosmic entity of galactic power and then died and then came back and then <laughs> died a few more times. <laughs> now, later in the pages of Deadly Hands of Kung Fu, Misty would meet mm-hmm. her eventual best friend and business partner, Colleen Wing, who we will discuss with much sadness when we get to the <laughs> Iron Fist show. Together, they formed Nightwing Restorations Limited and operated as private detectives and, in my favorite incarnation, bail bondswomen and bounty hunters to costumed criminals. Oh my God, I love that. I know, it's so good. (laughs) That series where they did that is called Samurai Bullets. I highly recommend it. And it literally starts Mm -hmm. with the rhino skipping out on his bail. It's pretty good. Wow. Okay, then. Now, together, these two ladies are inexplicably known as Daughters of the Dragon? I don't know. (laughs) It makes no sense, but I fucking love it, so we're going with it. It's fine. All right. (laughs) I really think it's just like brand synergy. Like, they kept showing up in books like Deadly Hands of Kung Fu and Masters Mm -hmm. of Kung Fu. And so they had to, you know, have a name that made sense in there. And frankly, at this point, I don't know what else we would call them. They are pretty fucking badass together. So call them something (laughs) awesome. 
Now, Misty is the female twin to Luke Cage in many ways. She's here to capitalize mm-hmm. on that black exploitation genre only with feminine empowerment. Mm-hmm. So she shares DNA with movies like Coffee and Foxy Brown. And this mm-hmm. is why, in my head, Misty is always Pam Greer from her prime, only with a bionic arm. All right. <laughs> it has been unfortunately rare that Misty and Colleen are allowed to shine on their own until recent years. Mm-hmm. She's become a much bigger player over the last 15 years or so, and has even been the main character in a book entitled Heroes for Hire when Luke was busy hanging out with Captain America and running away from Tony Stark during the superhero Civil War. Okay. <laughs> but even when Misty was a supporting character, guest star, and backup feature, she was always just like incredibly cool. Frankly, mm-hmm. frankly, she's too cool for Jean Grey as her roommate. I don't know how the <laughs> hell that worked. Like... Just so very white and so very not white. I don't know how they worked together, whatever. That would have been an amazing sort of odd couple comic book series. But anyway. Yeah. And frankly, Misty is way too baller for her sometimes boyfriend, Iron Fist. Oh. (laughs) With whom she shared the first interracial kiss in mainstream superhero comics. All right. In 1977. Wow. Now, Misty is fantastic and legit one of my favorite characters in superhero comics. She's such a mishmash of genre influences, many Mm -hmm. of which are particularly enticing to me personally. Mm -hmm. I just don't believe she could exist anywhere except in superhero stories. Right. Mm -hmm. Simone Missick isn't given exactly the Misty I love from the comics, but her casting is superb. And frankly, she and Mike Coulter are, in my opinion, the greatest losses from the Netflix MCU Mm cul-de-sac. And I can't wait to see what she's like in future seasons of Luke Cage, because this is the only season of Luke Cage I've seen. Oh, yeah. And I haven't even seen this. But OK, so now you've got Misty Knight. It, was she part of the the Luke? Because she's part. She's with Iron Fist. She's with Jean Grey. She's with uh, Colleen Wing. Is she part of the Luke Cage comics or is she connected with him or no? Yes, definitely. So. Oh, OK. Mm-hmm. Because she was dating Iron Fist, and this was at the time that Iron Fist and Luke Cage were teamed up as heroes okay. for hire. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, All right. So, yeah, she and Colleen are both like just intertwined with all that heroes for hire stuff. Mm-hmm. Like they, they would just be floating around that book all the time, you know. Yeah. Um, but that was that was a little later uh, because Luke shows up, like I said, in 1971. We'll talk more about mm-hmm. Iron Fist. He's there to capitalize on the Kung Fu craze that was going on at the time. But they were a little later mm-hmm. on the draw yes. for that one. Neither one of them were particularly successful alone. But when they come together, it is a special kind of magic. Oh, that's awesome. It's magic that's so strong. It almost kind of filters into the MCU Netflix mm-hmm. stuff, despite mm-hmm. the fact that Iron Fist is garbage. Okay, that's it. I'm okay. on. We got a lot of time for that later. <laughs> right. So yeah, so she's like really tied up in there. Um, she briefly dated Luke, but it's a it's a little weird because they're so similar. It's like, is this interesting? I don't know. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah. So but and the thing was that before that happened, mm-hmm. she was showing up in backup features of things like Deadly Hands of Kung Fu. It was just that the Marvel Universe was um, a lot more interconnected in a lot of ways then. And you Mm -hmm. had writers who would be, uh, and in this case, Chris Claremont on the X-Men, was writing 
backup features about Misty for other comic books. And so he Mm -hmm. liked her a lot and just slotted her in as Jean's roommate to kind of give that, you know, interconnected feel for the universe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, let's go ahead and get started talking about these episodes of Luke Cage. In Moment of Truth, Luke Cage is just your friendly neighborhood fugitive with two jobs, superhero powers, and a dream. To be left alone so he doesn't have to use his superhero powers. One of Luke's jobs is working for Pop, the neighborhood barber. And when two local kids, Shamik and Chico, end up involved in a shady arms deal gone wrong and become people of interest to gangster Cornell Stokes and to the police, Pop is worried. Luke's other job is washing dishes at Stokes' nightclub. There, Luke gets pulled into covering for the bartender and ends up having a very good night with a woman he meets at the bar. Stokes wants his money, kills Shamik, and goes on the hunt for Chico. A guy named Shades, who works for Stokes' supplier, steps in to help, and it turns out that this is the very guy who used to torment a pre-superpowered Luke when they were in prison together. Luke manages to avoid all of it, but when Stokes sends some guys into Luke's landlord's restaurant to shake him down for money to contribute to his cousin Mariah's political cause, Luke steps in, tears the guys apart, and promises he'll continue to protect the landlords. Moment of Truth was written by Chio Hodari Coker and directed by Paul McGugan. In Code of the Streets, Pop asks Luke to find Chico, and when Luke demurs, Pop reminds Luke that he said he'd owe Pop for keeping all the secrets, and Pop is cashing in. If Chico can be brought to the neutral ground of the barbershop, maybe they can work something out with Stokes. Meanwhile, Stokes and Mariah are working on their money troubles. Mariah used campaign donations to refurbish the Harlem's paradise, and if she doesn't get all the money fast, she's going to be audited. Luke finds Chico, who at first refuses to come to Pops, but then shows up later. Unfortunately for all involved, straight shooter Turk Barrett is visiting from Hell's Kitchen and sees Chico. I'm sure it'll be fine. Turk's a stand-up guy. (laughs) Turns out Luke's one-night stand, Misty, is a cop and she and her partner, Rafe, come around the barbershop looking for Chico, but Pop keeps him in hiding. But now, with the cops around, Pop doesn't think he can contact Stokes, so he sends Luke. Luke reminds Stokes of his history with Pop and Chico's dad, and Stokes agrees to the parlay. Meanwhile, Turk tips off Stokes' lieutenant, Tone. Tone and a reluctant Shades shoot up the barbershop, injuring Chico, killing Pop, and exposing Luke. In a rage, Stokes throws Tone off the roof, so, you know, he definitely fell from paradise. Know what I'm saying? (laughs) Mariah takes the recovered money and adds it to Shamik's at the Crispus Attic Center. Code of the Streets was written by Cheo Hodari Coker and directed by Paul McGuigan. All right. So, Joshua, here we have these first two episodes of Luke Cage. Um, And I have to say, like, overall, I found myself sadly not that interested. I think, okay, the big thing is, like, I love Luke Cage. I love Mike Coulter in the role. I love all of that. He's fantastic. Um, The problem for me is that essentially we have a protagonist problem and that one of the big things, a protagonist is supposed to do three things. It's supposed to be our POV character and he's got that. 
They're supposed to have the most at stake. He doesn't have that. They're also supposed to provide the motive force, meaning that they are in pursuit of something very personal and important to them, and that that's what keeps the story moving forward. And we don't have that. So basically, we have Luke's POV all over this, but we don't really have a strong sense of what he wants, because basically he wants nothing. He wants to be left out of it. Um, And we don't have a strong sense of like what all of this means to him, like what happens to him, you know, if this fight, you know, with Stokes for the neighborhood or whatever is lost. Feels like almost a similar setup to what we had with Daredevil, Um, you know, that there's a a guy in the neighborhood causing all sorts of problems. And here's the, you know, the power guy who's going to like, you know, save the neighborhood, Mm -hmm, except mm -hmm. that like he doesn't really seem to care that much. He's he's emotionally connected to Pop and because Pop cares about Chico, then Luke kind of cares about Chico. Um, but all of it just feels like, I mean, he beats up those guys because they're threatening his landlords, you know, and okay, but I don't know. It's just like, I feel really disconnected from the main narrative and I find myself often bored. And when I'm bored in something that has Alfred Woodard in it, then something's really wrong. There's a bunch of really great people going, I mean, this is- There are, The casting yeah. in this show is amazing. Um, yeah, Marshal Ali. I mean, my God, right? Yeah, I just yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I mean, he's so damn good. They're bringing him back as Blade into the regular MCU, or so I and hear. And good, so, yeah. All right, I don't care. Give him as many as you want. Give him as many parts as you want. He's fantastic. There's so many good, like amazing people in here. We've got um, the woman who plays Misty, who is incredible. Like they're all so good. I think it's just the writing. It's the storytelling that has some like real essential problems for me. And I just can't get over being like, I don't know, how is this Luke's problem? Like the only one I care about. I care actually Misty. I care about when Misty's on the screen. I'm completely engaged. <laughs> I don't care what's going on. She's you know, she's there. She's got a goal. She's like trying to find out what's going on. Um, I her. I'm completely into her story. Like whenever she's on screen, I'm fine. But the rest of it, I'm just like, I don't know. How is this Luke's problem? He doesn't care. <laughs> this is a legitimate question. And here, I think the yeah. thing that keeps me like hooked here at the beginning of this series uh-huh. is that I really, really love the like tone and aesthetic of it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Mm-hmm. And we are actually going to do towards the end of this episode, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about that because there's just a, and I mean this in the in the most positive sense. I actually am borrowing this phrase, um, I think, from a website called Black Nerd Problems. I don't remember where I first mm-hmm. read it, but I think that's where I did. That this show is just relentlessly black. <laughs> and I love this, right? Like the only yeah. authors they talk about are black authors. And all mm-hmm. the music is black musicians. And it's just a sea of people of color, you know, in this yeah. show. And all of that just permeates the entire aesthetic and the tone of it. But you are not wrong. Like, Luke has no hooks in this. And that's, Mm -hmm. I mean, I said we would talk about his origin more in a future episode, and we will. But I can tell you one of the places that it diverges is that he's not from Harlem in the show. Uh Mm -hmm. In the comics, he's 100% from Harlem, which is why he comes back to Harlem and why he cares about Harlem, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, I agree with you. He's just, I, I really like the idea of him coming out of Jessica Jones and just being like, I just want to be left alone. But that is some shit we should have solved by the end of the first episode. 
Oh, by the end of the first act, we should have something ne- there needs to be personal to him, you know? And I think that pop is a big part of that, you know, because pop obviously clearly matters a great deal to Luke, mm-hmm. you know? Um, we lose pop at the end of the second episode. And at that point, I'm just like, Luke doesn't care. I don't really care. We're spending all this time with, you know, political. We've got this whole kind of like political movement going on with Mariah, you know. Um, And, I, you know, I kind of like the um, like the discussions that she gets into with with Stokes. Right. You know, she has all these like really deep discussions about like, you know, where we come from. You don't need to be a gangster. You don't need to do this. And he's like, well, the money's going to come from somewhere, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, and and they're both on both sides of this kind of respectability argument Mm -hmm. you know um they're they're on both sides of this um you know this kind of like like the progress like what is progress and and yeah at the same time she's letting him and his shady deal like fund a lot of the stuff that she's doing you know um so i find it really interesting and i like that kind of contrast and relationship between these two, you mm-hmm. know, yeah. um, you know, mutually assured, uh, you know, benefits and, uh, and they're working together, even though both of them, I think a little bit have to hold their nose to work together. There's that moment where he's like, are you ashamed of me? And clearly, yes. I, that's clearly the thing. I yes. don't think that Stokes is holding mm-hmm. his nose to work with Mariah. I think it actually yeah. hurts his feelings a little bit that she holds her nose to work with him. Yeah. <laughs> and we will actually find out a little bit more about their backstory as we go. But we've already mm-hmm. dropped the fact that they are related to Mama Mabel, yeah. who ran the mm-hmm. neighborhood back in the day, you know. Yeah. Um, and that's going to that's going to matter, you know, um, as far as kind of the split between them, I think. So Mama Mabel was was she also a gangster? Yes. Yes. I love it. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm just, I'm into, I'm into a woman gangster. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's well, great. A woman with power. Yes. Okay. I have great news then. Whenever mm-hmm. we get to that point, I'm going to do a little history lesson because she is loosely based on an actual historical person from I love the it. era of the Harlem Renaissance, who is so fantastic that when I stumbled on her existence, I immediately adapted her into something I was working on. Like she, this historical person is very, very cool and we will get to it. Awesome. I look forward to hearing that. Those roots will like feed into that kind of, you know, stop pretending you're better than me, but but I am though, you know. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, the thing is, there was a way that they could have written this where mm-hmm. Luke was able to kind of straddle both of their worlds too, so that right, so that they are direct antagonists to him. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. have money and influence, so he he's very much operating at a street level. And later he does become kind of a folk hero, which gives him some stroke mm-hmm. in the neighborhood mm-hmm. in a way that Mariah has trouble maintaining. Like she has to work yeah. really hard at it because it's politics and it's not sexy, and also she has. Mm-hmm things from her past she's hiding so does luke i mean you see there's all these parallels Mm -hmm. and it just doesn't come together in a way that hooks luke yeah so that's a that's a problem i think is really going to plague this entire series like we'll talk about it more as we go but luke is not the most dynamic protagonist Mm mm-hmm 
Well, he's not engaged. Yeah. Like, this is the thing. A protagonist needs to, whatever's going on needs to be so important and so personal to the protagonist that we're, because you ride through the story on the back of the protagonist. Yeah. So it needs to be personal and important to them. Um, and he is our protagonist. He is our POV character. He is the one we're interested in. I mean, his name is on the show like clearly he's the protagonist you know and yet we don't we don't get a lot there is a little bit like this whole you know weird backstory with shades right Mm -hmm. um who apparently was beating him up in um in jail and apparently like i don't know i think that uh, i would guess that he has something to do with whatever it is that happened to luke when he was in prison that gave him his superpowers i'm guessing that he has something to do with that you don't have to tell me worry um, not lonnie there is an interminable flashback origin episode it'll all i eventually expect be known. that it will except that i do not believe that even a regular powered non-bulletproof luke cage was going to be beat up by this dude. Like, I find that really hard to believe. He's not that big. Um, There's some circumstances. We'll get to it, you know. Yeah, yeah. okay. All right, all right. Well, maybe there's something to it. I, I loved, like, the moment when Shades walks through, like, and sees Luke, but, like, doesn't recognize him, right? Yeah. And then Luke is back in his apartment, bags packed, like, ready to skip town. Uh-huh. And, I mean, that kind of informs us of how truly scary the Shades character is. And yet, later on, you know, when the when Tone is shooting up the barbershop, Shades is the voice of reason. Yep. Like, Shades is the one telling him not to do it. So, I find that actually really interesting, that here we have this guy that is so scary that a bulletproof Luke Cage is ready to skip town because he walked through a kitchen, right? Mm-hmm. And, and yet, he's not the crazy, insane, homicidal lunatic that you would expect expect from something like that so that feels like that might have a little more nuance and interest i mean by the end of the second episode i was definitely more engaged yeah you know i mean i'm definitely more interested in what's going on um but a lot of it is just really really tough and and you know some of the violence in it is is hard to watch like when um when stokes is killing shameek yeah. Um, that brutality of that. I mean, first of all, I love the way it's shot. I have to say visually, this thing is unbelievable. It's beautiful. It's wonderfully shot. I love the composition of the shot where he's in front of the picture with uh, Biggie Smalls yes. in it, right? And he's got the crown like floating over his head with the way that the shot is composed, you know, um, which is, you know, from Shamik's POV, right? We're seeing that. Um, so I thought that, that was really beautiful. And it was so it was beautifully done, like from a technical standard, it was beautifully done. But that was really, really hard to watch. I actually really appreciate that the violence in Luke Cage is like sort of real and visceral. Like it's beautifully shot, mm-hmm. which is yes. not necessarily realistic, but it's also like gut wrenching, which is, yeah. you know, a thing that kind of comes in from uh, from Daredevil a little bit, too. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. it, and I feel like it shows, you know, some real cost and also like grits this thing up, which is a big deal mm-hmm. for, you know, all the MCU shows right. sometimes to their detriment, you know. Right. Mm-hmm. But in this case, it really works. And I feel like that kind of brutality could have also been a thing that might hook Luke into mm-hmm. yeah. a more direct confrontation. Yeah. 
And yeah, it just it just takes it just takes a little too long. It just takes too long. It takes a little too long for him to actually like care and be involved and be personally touched by it. Um, but I will say though that uh, Misty. Misty pretty much makes up for everything in this that bores me. Misty is like my favorite thing. She's when she's in the bar and she's just flirting with him and everything like that's fantastic. She's wonderful there. They have sex. That's great. When she leaves and she's like, I'm an auditor. rushing off to work in this dress i love when she says that jacket's small and he says so is your dress and Uh, she goes touche yeah it's so great the vaguely confrontational conversation over the bar that is yeah is it flirting like yes but also not yeah it's i i like it a lot oh we're both old and our clothes are too small is this flirting (laughs) Uh, clearly it's meant to be. <laughs> it works. There, she's so great. She's so great. And I love, too, she's a cop. I love that scene in the beginning of the second episode, right, where she is staring yes, at yes. all of the crime scene photos and she's actually, like, in, I love the way they shot that, where she's just in the crime scene and she's watching it happen around her. And I love everything. And then her, her, um, her, her partner, Rafe, right? Is it just me or is he supposed to be a total doof? I think that he is. So the feeling I get, because Misty really mm-hmm. respects him, right, is right. that he is probably a very good detective. But of the two of them, he is playing the goofy white guy in Harlem role for their partnership, yeah. like out in the world. Sure. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, right. Because, you know, when he says you're looking at the pictures like they're about to move, uh, she doesn't, you know, turn around and tell him how wrong he is. And their whole their whole conversation. No, they do about, speak to each other with respect. Right. Yeah. Yes. I mean, even when yeah. they're joking, like about Ben Franklin, you know. Right. Um, so so I think I think that's, you know, he is supposed to to a certain extent be the doofy white guy. But I think he's leaning into yeah. it. Uh, okay, maybe, maybe, because at some points, like he, he seems like a doof to me, and yet she respects him, and I trust her so completely that I'm like, no, if she likes him, he's good. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If Misty, if Misty vouches for you, you're good with me, you know, and it's fine. Um, I love her when she's playing basketball. You know, to get the information. Um, I love her through the whole thing. I love her when when Rafe is like, yeah, you know, we should talk to whoever was the bartender that night. And she's like, yeah, sure. If you want to waste your time or whatever, I don't care. It's so cute. And that moment when she's in the barber shop and Luke walks in and Luke is just like, oh, so I see you found better clothes to audit it or something like that. It's so great. And then like, just I shades the hell her. right out of her. Like, oh, he's been oh, doing yeah. something shady. Like, I don't know, telling people he's someone different than he actually is. <laughs> Which, let's be honest, that's a, and this will become more apparent as this this series goes on. That's a very yeah. glass house that Luke is throwing stones from. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's so, it's so, she is fantastic so i'm i'm completely engaged by her i love her um so she's a she's a really really good part of this and i'm very excited to know that she has a a strong comic book history and that she's going to uh to have some interesting things to do so i'm I'm excited about that um i like pop you know for a pop we hardly knew ye you know um pop is the uh 
He's a good mentor. Of course, all mentors have to die. So that's part of that that archetype. Um, and uh, and he's, you know, I, I like him. I like the way he takes care of all the kids. You know, he talks about how his own son, you know, he did see after yeah. a certain point, like up to like the age of 13 or whatever. And so he adopted like all the boys in the neighborhood and tried to kind of raise them a little bit. His his the barbershop was the family center, mm-hmm. you know, for the neighborhood. Um, so much so that I kind of love the way that that Stokes when he finds out that Pop is dead, right? Yeah. Just throws Tone off the fucking roof, you know? That's crazy. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I really appreciate them tying Stokes's past like as a street thug to yeah. Pop's background as a street mm-hmm. thug yeah um mm-hmm. and chico's dad being the the last of their three musketeers is is very good for you know kind of tying a bow on all those relationships but mm-hmm. yeah those two having been in a certain place together it again i'm kind of giving um hints to future conversations but that's actually putting pop in a space that luke would have occupied in the comic books yeah. Yeah, we'll get we'll get to it. Which when I start explaining the differences between their origins, I think you're going to be like, "Why the hell did they change this?" You know, right. because it would have hooked Luke in more. But yeah, uh-huh. yeah, Pop is great. Yeah. The barbershop is great. Uh, his motivation, yeah, and just taking care of the kids and the, even the swear jar, which which threatened to annoy me at first. I'm like, nope, that's uh-huh. the kind of place this barbershop is. I love it. Right, right. I like that. Um, One thing, of course, I think you probably could predict this that I was never going to like is the fractured tease in the second episode. And it's a fractured tease to a moment that is, I think, significant for Luke, but it really isn't part of the story. It's terrible. It's Um, terrible. I. uh. Yeah. This whole thing. Okay, so for anybody out there who isn't aware of what a fracture tease is, it's when you borrow something exciting from the end of a show or, or like the climax of a show or, or a, a story and you put it at the beginning and then you cut and you start with all the other stuff. Now, this is what happens when somebody knows what they're writing is boring and not engaging. And so they try to do this thing to be like, oh, no, here a kid has a gun to Luke's bulletproof head, which, uh, you know, yeah. I guess at that point... At that point, do we know he's... Yeah, we know he's bulletproof because he took a bullet at the end of the first episode. So, yeah, we already know. Um, You know, if you didn't see Jessica Jones or whatever, would you know? But, um, yeah, so... So the fracture tease in general, I find really annoying when it's borrowed from that story. But the thing is, is here we've just got this as bookends on this where he just is randomly held up with a gun to his head by this, you know, local kid. Right. Um, And it's so irritating I hate that so much. But even a fra- like this is the thing, like we don't even borrow apart from this story. We end up just splitting this one moment into two sections that we put at the beginning at the end of the episode to kind of give it like a bookend feel. But narratively, it's just it's not a good call. It's not a strong choice. And the the moment itself when he turns around and starts talking about Christmas addicts, um, I just didn't feel, I don't know, it just didn't feel connected to me to the rest of everything that was going on. So did you get anything from that at all? I mean, I, no. I mean, I was going to try and like pull something decent out because I do think that that scene on its own, like sort of separated from everything else is like a really kind of 
potentially powerful scene, you know? Yes. The potential yeah. for mm-hmm. something good happening. But the weirdest thing to me is that, you know, usually these fractured teases, they steal from the most exciting part of the episode. But that right. part is only exciting with the context that we get from the rest of the episode. So it doesn't even make sense right. as a hook, really. But it's not even it's not even part of the narrative, though. I mean, if you take that off, if you take all of that out, you lose nothing really from no, the episode. That's true. That is definitely you know. True. So I mean, to me, it's not even part of the narrative. It's like a little vignette, and I'm like, why are we wasting time with this, especially in a show that's having trouble kind of hooking yeah. the protagonist into everything? Um, you know, we see that he is very, very upset. You know, of course, at the end of that day. Um, but this particular instance feels uh, feels separate from everything else. It doesn't feel connected to everything else, you know. Um, so I don't know. I didn't particularly care for it. It's a fractured. It's a fractured tease done worse than even most fractured teases yes. are, and I'm very disappointed. Putting Cheo Coker in the uh, in the penalty box for ten minutes because that's not okay. I Can't mean, do that. That location will actually mm-hmm. become very important and something of a flashpoint, you know. Oh, well, sure. Yeah, because that's her project, right? Mariah's project and that she's trying to build. And it's where the money is and, yeah. you know, all that stuff. But it's also like, then do this scene in the episode where it actually becomes a flashpoint. Where that's significant, yeah. where that's a thing, right? Crazy. Because at this point, like, you know, Luke is staring down at this place that... But, I mean, I'm not even certain, and maybe I missed it, I'm not even certain that he's aware of... Uh, Mar- I mean, I guess he's aware that the guys that were shaking down... Um, his landlords yes. were there trying to get money for that, right? But I mean, how personally he feels about that particular building, I don't know. He also saw them taking the money that Shamik had in there yeah. when mm-hmm. he was looking for yeah. Chico. So, but again, it's not personal. He's just starting to like put pieces together. Yeah. It's not, right. you know, and there's not even a mystery to solve yet, except for Misty's mm-hmm. mystery, which we already know the... You know, right. we know how it went down. Um, yes. And Luke doesn't care. Mm-hmm. See all of our previous problems with the beginning of the show. So, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So one thing that I did want to talk about a little bit, and I have to say this may be a little bit uncomfortable, but I think it's something that maybe needs a little bit of attention is the use of the, the what we will call the N word in this episode. Right. Yes. Um, and, and throughout the series. Um, and, you know, we have like it's one thing to use it, but but twice we we look directly at it. You know, which I think is what makes it narratively significant. Mariah says, you know, I despise that word. Right. And Luke says, I'm not tired enough to ever let anybody call me that word. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, So Mike Coulter actually did an interview where he said that he and uh, Cheo Coker, the show creator and, and the writer of these two episodes, had had a talk about it and decided that it would be disingenuous to not use it, you know, in in this part of the the culture. I mean, it is it's a black story and they're talking about this. And there is a movement, you know, to kind of like reclaim that word for black people, you Mm -hmm. know. Um, And the thing is, like, I don't think there is any word that there's no word that I can think of in the English language that carries with it this level of emotional violence the way that this word does. Um, And as a white person, I have to say, I don't feel qualified really to give my opinion on its use out there in the world, you know. Um, But I will say that people who are hurt by a word 
have the right to reclaim it in whatever way they want to and whatever way they can. And a word too vile to be spoken can sometimes end up having even more power. Not that white people should ever say it, but I'm saying that the people who have a right to it and have a right to reclaim it should be able to do as they wish with it, you know? Um, But when you think of like, he who shall not be named in Harry Potter, right? When you won't say a word, that gives that word and everything around it so much power Mm -hmm. and you don't leave power on the table. So the people who should reclaim that power, I think have a right to reclaim that power and absolutely go to it. I'm not one of those people. I will never say that word, uh, but I will not judge the people who take its power back and I will not sit here and be all white and fragile around it, (laughs) you know? Um, So that's kind of how I feel about it. Um, But I will say though that it is it is amazing to me how how magical words are Mm, um you know because you just think like here's this this word right it's a combination of letters and phonemes right i mean that's what it is right but it can do using this word can do actual violence to people actual emotional violence to people because it has been charged with violence and with evil you know, um, and used, you know, for specific and deliberate purpose, you know, to do that kind of violence. And so to me, just purely from the the point of view of a writer, somebody who loves words, that when you can take a particular word and charge it that way, um, the fact that you can do that, I think, is something that is kind of fascinating about language and about meaning and about humanity. Um, it is horrible and tragic the way in which this particular word has been used in that way. Um, but again, like I am I am not about anybody leaving power on the table. And if there's power to be taken from it, I think that absolutely everybody should. I'm glad that they made the choice that they made. I'm glad that they made the choice to look directly at it. To acknowledge it and to kind of, you know, work with it a little bit rather than just simply use and reclaim it. They really are kind of doing something with it. Um, And I think that that's really interesting, too. And I kind of like the way that they they approached that very, very difficult, very sensitive space in this show. I am also a white person and therefore not in a position to have all the opinions about it. But I do know Mm -hmm. that the use of the N-word is a thing that is kind of in conversation within the the sort of broader African-American community Mm -hmm. and culture. And so the fact that this, again, to to borrow a phrase, relentlessly black show looks right at it and does not answer a question on it, I don't mm-hmm. think. Yes. Um, at least not yes. in these first two episodes, but it raises the question to, to say we're having this chat like as as a right. group. So, of mm-hmm. course, our hopefully grounded in some kind of realism heroes and villains will also be having that conversation. It's very, very cool. It's very cool. OK, so speaking of like larger conversations within African-American culture and community. Mm-hmm. I, again, mm-hmm. not an expert or ready to necessarily comment on every one of these things, but there is a lot of black music, books, and history going into this show. And I feel like we would be doing a big disservice to it if we didn't at least shine a spotlight on it. 
you know? Absolutely. And mm-hmm. then and then we can, you know, have a larger conversation or actually I'm going to refer you in the show notes to some much more qualified folks uh, to have this conversation mm-hmm. or who have written on it. So musically, I mean, you can tell how much hip hop and R&B is influencing the soundtrack of this show and mm-hmm. what's going mm-hmm. on in, um, you know, in the Harlem Paradise. But a thing that I noticed the very first time that I started watching this show is that each mm-hmm. episode of the first season is named for a Gangstar track. Wow. Now, for full disclosure, like I have been a hip hop head since like 1987. Um, mm-hmm. I was like 10 years old <laughs> and decided <laughs> that I was just going to adopt the, the, the white kid in semi-rural Oklahoma heard his first rap song and was like, yes, please. And I don't know how to explain how that happened in my brain, but I'm very happy it did uh-huh. because it's it's just yes. become the warp and woof of my own personal soundtrack. And so mm-hmm. I recognized that, that like I was flipping through looking to see how many episodes there were and stuff. And I was like, wait, just a damn minute. These are really familiar. <laughs> You know, <laughs> so Gangstar is a rap duo made up of Guru and DJ Premier. Uh-huh. I could say a lot about them. I'm going to keep this short and on point. So trust me when I say that they are amazing mm-hmm. or I should say were amazing. I have to use the past tense because Guru died from a heart attack in 2010. Uh, mm-hmm. But if you want a little taste of the awesome that is Gangstar, I will put in the show notes a link to an internet DJ named Complexion who took all the tracks mm-hmm. that were used for titles in this first season and like mixed them together. So that we have like a Luke great. Cage mega mix. Mm-hmm. It is great. Awesome. And I really <laughs> recommend it. We listen to it a lot in my house. Mm-hmm. So also the first musical act at the Harlem Paradise was Raphael Sadiq, who I was mm-hmm. not as familiar with, uh, but he's a old school R&B guy. I have been listening to him a lot more since uh, since I started rewatching this show. Very, very mm-hmm. good. If you if and and was also on purpose, like the fact that they chose him to have him on the show so that mm-hmm. Luke and Misty could connect over to the fact that they are a little bit older than the rest of the clientele. Yeah. Very mm-hmm. cool. Very good. Uh, you already mentioned we've got the big picture of Biggie Smalls hanging in the mm-hmm. Cottonmouth's office. Uh, those of you who don't know, Notorious B.I.G., Biggie. Very famous East Coast rapper during the golden age of hip hop. If you're not listening to Biggie, go do it. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. But there's another reference to Biggie, or at least a connection to Biggie, in the show. Because the other musical mm-hmm. act that you see is Faith Evans, and that's Biggie's widow. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yes. Now, she's a spectacular artist in her own right and mm-hmm. was before she and Biggie got together. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I don't, it's not only that you should know Faith Evans through him, but. That's definitely done with some purpose, I mm-hmm. think, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and just further demonstrates the overall blackness of the show and like yeah. the, the East Coast hip hop roots that they're working with. So mm-hmm. there are also a lot of books in these first couple episodes. Um, and again, I'm just going to hit them high points, you know, but mm-hmm. uh, The Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison, Outliers mm-hmm. by Malcolm Gladwell and a book by Julius Lester, who is who writes on black folklore mm-hmm. and Attica which is literally by the New York State Special Commissions on Attica. (laughs) Those were the things that were like on Luke's 
Yeah. Uh, his bedside table, you know, those mm-hmm. were the ones he was packing up to take with him. And um, I want to borrow, actually, and I'm going to link to this article also. Uh, there is a website called Black Nerd Problems that very mm-hmm. much looks at all of this genre fiction, especially superheroes and comic books and stuff, from an African-American lens. Mm-hmm. And they have a an article called The Luke Cage Syllabus that breaks mm-hmm. down all the black literature in this first season. They have one for the second season also. Yeah. But I'm going to quote from them real quick be, to show how important the, the choice of these books are. Mm-hmm. They say... In this quick scan of books, the first time viewer sees Luke's love of history and literature pop out on the screen. On display is his deep understanding of black life and masculinity and what it means to be someone who can shift things from the periphery to the center, even if they are incarcerated, is paralleled wow. by those books. Mm-hmm. And I, I love it. I love That's all that. Awesome. That is. Yeah. Yeah. That was big. Um but there's a lot of fiction mentioned, too, because we mentioned Donald Goines, who wrote mm-hmm. a series of uh, urban crime novels in the 70s about a character called Kenyatta that they put in tension with Chester Himes, who wrote mm-hmm. a series of urban crime novels called the, Har- the Harlem Detective series. Mm-hmm. And then an author that I have mentioned on this podcast before. Yeah. Uh, because Luke is reading Little Green by Walter Mosley, which is one mm-hmm. of the books in the Easy Rollins series yes. mm-hmm. that starts with uh, with Devil in a Blue Dress that I mm-hmm. that I had mentioned. Um, I think in terms of uh, of Peggy Carter, like the yes. idea of what what it might be like to be a black mm-hmm. man in California in the 40s and 50s. Yes, mm-hmm. and that they are so respectful the, the the characters are discussing these and putting them in tension and talking about who does what better but they're mm-hmm. so respectful of every single one of them that it's not an argument about which one is the best mm-hmm. it's an it's a conversation about who does what very well and right. i feel like fucking superhero nerds everywhere could take a lesson <laughs> from that discourse yes mm-hmm. now Bullet points for history, okay? Because, again, not an expert, definitely not a thing I want to climb into super far. But Mm -hmm. I think that it's really on point, kind of like the looking straight at the use of the N-word, that they are also looking straight at incarceration and Mm -hmm. fatherlessness and what an epidemic and a codependent pair of problems those are to the black community in America. Um, Again, black nerd problems will refer you to a lot of Uh, books that you can read if you want to dig into that more. Mm -hmm. Uh, Similarly, they're talking about a new Harlem Renaissance and the Mm -hmm. Harlem's Paradise is very much supposed to harken back to the last Harlem Renaissance, which was in the 20s when jazz was, Mm -hmm. you know, just taking over and you had black owned speakeasies where you could go and get a drink and hear jazz. And it's the only place to hear good jazz because only the Black people are making good jazz, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, you have Etta Fitzgerald. You've got Langston Hughes mentioned. You've got just, it is an explosion of African-American culture from that era that, yeah. like, they are still building on, you know. Um, and again, I'm going to stop right there because I could start to talk about things that I am less qualified to talk about. But it's right. definitely worth looking into. Um, and then the last bit, because this is... This is a thing that's going to keep coming up. Mm-hmm. Hoodies. Yeah. I know that both Coulter and Hoker spoke specifically about the use of hoodies in the series and how mm-hmm. and how giving the article of clothing that was so tightly connected to Trayvon Martin yeah. to a bulletproof black man mm-hmm. was very much a statement 
that yeah. you could take home and unpack for hours. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I, I I don't know that we're going to get hit with quite as much in every bundle of two or three episodes as here. So that was kind mm-hmm. of a lot. And I appreciate everybody's largesse as I went through it. But all that stuff, I have I have a lot of like a peripheral and tangential relationship to like some of that black literature and especially mm-hmm. the music that I was just like, I love all of this and I got to say something. Yeah, no, I think it's wonderful. And I think that we can like it's tough. Like clearly we're two white people talking about these things and there's a lot of um, perspective that we're going to miss in our discussion. But I think acknowledging and appreciating what is there. Um, is absolutely a good thing. And I'm really, really glad that you took the time to do that. I'm not as familiar with all that stuff. I definitely don't know anything about the music. I don't know anything about any music. I know less about like music in general than anybody else that I know. It's just not my thing. So I'm really glad that I'm you were able to I'm doing what I can to fix that, listeners, during I know. the watching of Luke Cage. So he is. blow up Lonnie's spot and tell her <laughs> to start listening to the things that Josh tells her to listen to while we're watching Luke Cage. Do what Josh says, right? <laughs> That's right. (laughs) All right, Josh, what's your favorite part? Okay, you talked about it as making you very squeamish, but I'm honestly in love with every single part of Stokes' office confrontation with Shamik. Yeah. Including the way it ends, because I really like that he's, I don't want to say like, like, I appreciate. That's a better word. Mm -hmm. I appreciate how it starts out with Stokes looking down on him and slapping mm-hmm. him open-handed. Right, you know? right, um, yeah. And then when Shamik has an act of defiance, Stokes is like, okay, now I can treat you like a man and proceeds mm-hmm. to beat him to death. And again, yeah. there's a lot of conversation about black masculinity and mm-hmm. violence and stuff going on just in that scene yeah. that, yeah, I couldn't. I, I mean, it is very squeamish. It's very gut wrenching, but yeah. it's shot so well, and the lighting choices, and the the sort of miniature character arc <laughs> that mm-hmm. that Stokes and Shamik go through with each other. I love yeah. it. I absolutely yeah. love it. No, I mean, I think it was really, really well done. Like, I appreciate how well it was done. It's just the kind of thing to which I am extremely sensitive. So there, that kind of thing is really really hard for me to watch but I thought it was beautifully done um, for me you know of course it's going to be everything Misty but specifically I love the way that they represented her mental space when she was staring at the murder board yes. you know yeah. um, and the way that she's in that scene and she's seen everything happen and she's replaying it um, I just thought that was very cool and every like I just I love her I love her she delights me throughout this whole thing and I cannot wait to see more of her she really is great and everything. And the, the thing I really appreciate about that particular scene is how it makes it clear that she is an excellent detective. Oh, yeah. Oh, we don't yeah. need other people to say so. We can mm-hmm. see by the way her mind works that she is a good, very good detective. And, you know, again, as discussed during Jessica Jones, those are thin on the ground. Right. <laughs> If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to join in, come find us on Twitter. Lonnie is at Lonnie Diane Rich, and I am at Joshua Unruh, and the hashtag is Listen Up, A-Holes. This episode of Listen Up, A-Holes was brought to you by the Chipperish and Pulp Diction producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Listen Up, A-Holes is coming to you free and ad-free right now, so thank you to our October producers, Jonathan, Noel, Kristen, Alyssa, Alice, Erica, Shelley, Abigail, and Sarah. Thank you, producers, and to everyone who supports Chipperish Media or Pulp Diction Productions, this message is for you. 
The door ain't been built yet that can hold you back. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media or Pulp Diction Productions, our Patreon links are in the show notes. And there are other ways to show your support. Write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or collect your money from Tone Downstairs. I like it. We're just threatening them into <laughs> into reviews, and I'm here for it. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of Listen Up, A-Holes. We'll be back next time with our discussion of Luke Cage, episodes three through five. Until then, Jesus saves. I don't.